Welcome to the Legendarium. Everybody knows, everybody knows it except the White Tower. Everybody. Welcome back, welcome back everybody to the Legendarium Podcast number 136, Path of Daggers Part 1. I am Craig Hanks, your host. And over there, it may be it may be illegal in forty eight states, but he still loves to ease that badger. It's Ken Johnson. <laughs> Whatever, I will knife paper stone you so hard. <laughs> and he is so much worse. Or it, yeah, he's so much worse than Egwene. It's Kyle Lemon. <laughs> Man, let me just tell you, Craig, that I think I actually like Egwene more than I like you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. <laughs> First things first, before I go any further, uh, those who participated know who they are, but I'll just say publicly thank you to everybody who participated in the little uh, Reddit thread that we had. I I put up a call for uh, Wheel of Time themed insults, and those were but a couple of some very good suggestions that we got on there. So uh, head to thelegendarium.reddit.com and join the conversation there. We do all sorts of stupid crap like that, <laughs> and uh, and I'd love to get your what themed insults. <laughs> yes, I'd I'd love for you to shovel some stupid crap my <laughs> way. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's see. So thelegendarium.reddit.com, of course, find us on Facebook and check us out at Patreon.com/slash legendarium i think yeah i think it's just legendarium for that one so patreon.com slash legendarium and please support the show there we got a very generous donation this week and i was very pleased it was a a donation that came or i I should because they're recurring i shouldn't call them that it's a, a very generous patron but we got that along with another note and i love getting those notes so keep them coming everybody love to hear from you and thank you very much for supporting the show. Now then, let's talk about Wheel of Time, Book Eight, Path of Book Eight, right? Yeah, yeah. Path yeah. of Daggers. It's getting a little hard to keep track, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Uh, all right, here's a, a little summary for you guys. It's it's less a summary and more just a an opening statement because uh, everybody's talking about Jim Comey this week. So I guess oh uh, I guess if you're listening to this in three years you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, all right. Anyway, little summary for book eight. Let me see how quickly I can do this. Four things. No, sorry. Three things happen in this book. They use the bowl of the winds. There's a battle with the Shan Chan, and Rand is attacked by Deshiva, Gedwin, and Rochide. That's it. Now, all right. Yes, some other stuff happens. I know. Egwene strengthens her power over the Rebel Eyes Sedai. The Wonder Girls, the Windfinders, and the Kin all have a dick measuring contest. And Perrin becomes a legit lord when a queen swears fealty to him. So I get it. But most of the other stuff that happens like that took way more pages than were strictly necessary to convey it. Now, before you all start yelling at me, I know, I know, there's a lot of stuff buried in there, Craig, and it's all important. I get it, and I, I agree, I think. Uh, but what it feels like is... Um, you know that thing where the first 300 pages of a fantasy book is world building and then the next 300 pages are set up and then the last 100 pages are the the satisfying and exciting payoff and conclusion? It just feels a little weird to have all of that so out of order in the Wheel of Time. Path of Daggers is book 8 of 14 and up to this point I feel like we've had two resolutions, three rounds of world building, and then this book amounted to our third go of plot setup. 
Jordan is bouncing ruthlessly between all of these stages, and frankly, my neck is starting to hurt. Kyle, <laughs> uh, what do you think? Am I right about the weird structure, or am I just imagining things? Yeah, I, th- I think I've said this earlier on in the in the podcast. I can't remember which episode it was, but early um, in the Wheel of Time, that when we get into these later, you know, middle to late books, it starts to feel like Jordan is stretching the story out, um, and he is, but it feels almost like he's writing a story that's so big that it can't be contained in a single single book, um, or like the way that somebody would print a book, I guess. Yeah, and so you don't necessarily have the same feel as the earlier books where you have a self somewhat self-contained story or adventure right. um, that is just part of a larger, a larger story, larger adventure. Yeah, yeah. This is really just kind of like, here's where we're at in the overarching story that does span 14 books. And yeah, here's where we are. And this is how many pages we could publish. Um, it feels a little bit like Jordan's writing two books or writing one book that needs to be bound in two. So it's kind of like book eight and book nine would really be awesome if they were just one book, but there's not enough to actually, you can't actually bind that book together and sell it to people. So Tor (laughs) has to like chop it in half. Okay. Um, So that's kind of, I think that's kind of where you're getting at is like, it's not that same um, feel of a self-contained adventure or story within the overarching series. Right. It's just kind of, here's some more of what's going on with Nynaeve and Elaine, and here's some more of what's going on with Rand, and Deshaun Chen are showing back up, and Perrin's doing a thing over here, and uh, it doesn't feel as cohesive for this singular book. But yeah, 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 no, I see what you mean. There's a, there's a uh, complaint that people sometimes, and it's, I mean, it's usually a tongue in cheek complaint, but when you read Harry Potter, it's like, Oh, how convenient that the dark Lord's plans always come to fruition right at the end of the school year. Right. And I get it. I mean, it's a little silly and campy, but, uh, but it does provide a very nice narrative arc for each book. And so, um, you know, sometimes realism has to take a backseat to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, the, you know, literary factors. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, and, and so I shouldn't complain too hard because that is a little bit ridiculous. If, mm-hmm. you know, the Dark Lord's plans came to fruition at the end of every single book, it would get yeah. maybe a little tedious. But at the same time, it's it's kind of hard because, yeah, I'm getting toward the, to the end of book eight and there's this big battle scene happening with the Shan Shan and I'm like... I'm like, oh man, something crazy is gonna happen, and he he whips out Calendor, and then like nothing happens. I mean, something well, happens, but it's not very like, it's not satisfying as a reader, you know, well, in, in a in was, a narrative sense. It it's also, not a yeah, it it, there, happens, it's not closure. It also happens 150 pages before the book actually ends. exactly. It was. I think exactly. that's the issue. Is that is maybe I mean because then you get on to the final like climactic scene of the book with the the rogue Ashaman and stuff right. like that. But it feels a little strange because you don't have the idea of like the great hunt. The horn gets stolen in the great hunt. They go chase after it. They find it. Matt ends up blowing the horn and there's this huge battle at the end. Self-contained book, self-contained adventure. Cool. Beginning, middle, end. Same thing with Um, uh, Dragon Reborn. Within the book, yeah. yeah. And this one, it's hard to, like you can remember certain 
events that happened, but it's hard to say from the start of this book to the end of this book, here is this arc. Yeah. Yeah. It's like book two is the, is the horn. Book three is tear. Um, book four is the, the The Aiel book, Mm -hmm. you know, and so you can kind of divide it up. Now we're getting into like, well, what was book seven about? Uh, I mean, there's some stuff well, that happened. What was book eight about? Well, uh, mm-hmm. everything, you know, yeah. and, and uh, again, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying like, Oh, this sucks. I mm-hmm. wish it were a different way. It's just really throwing me well, off. Yeah. And I think that, right? and I think that actually speaks to my point earlier um, where I said, like, it feels like it's one book that's published in two separate volumes right. instead right. of like, self-contained adventures in each volume and that's that's how i've always felt my first time through every time through and it's not bad necessarily as long as you look at it in that grander scheme but it can be a little bit frustrating as a reader to say like oh like this wasn't a self-contained adventure in this volume all right ken we've steamrolled steamrolled over you a couple times that's okay what were you gonna say Uh, nothing important no i'm just kidding it it um I, I was just going to piggyback on your guys' points. It, basically, from book six through, I'm going to guess I haven't, you know, obviously first time through, I haven't read ahead, but I'm guessing through through book 11. That's where I'm I'm figuring those five books are all kind of the same, the same, um, sequ- not sequences, but the, the same plots churning, just it, it's all driving. And, and then we start to get wrap up and closure around book 11 or book 12, I guess, because 12, 13, and 14 were all supposed to be one book initially, and then, you know... And then they got Sanderson. And then they got Sanderson. Well, yeah. Then then Jordan got, you know, dead. And so, anyway, but I, I, that's my guess, is, is, is that's you're kind very, of... You're a very diplomatic man, Ken. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I calls it like I sees it, but that's, that's kind of what I'm anticipating. So I don't expect all of these books to wrap up nicely... Yeah. You know, right here, and especially seven and eight, which are the shortest books, and those were supposed to be one book initially, right? And like you well, said, oh, seven and eight were no, they weren't. They weren't necessarily supposed to be one book, but it my just point feels that, that way to you. It feels like, and not necessarily those books in particular. It just feels like you've got two volumes that really would make a more cohesive story as one volume. Yeah. But they're so yeah. long that you can't publish them that way. Um, it's and I sim- think that that's oh sorry go ahead sorry I was gonna say it's similar to what George R R Martin did with books four and five of his Song of Ice and Fire series mm-hmm. they were supposed to be one book but it was just mm-hmm. so long and he split them and mm-hmm. anyway well, that's a whole another and now we dare yeah. not speak his name and well, now we dare not <laughs> yes. and it's and it's a definite shift in the you know the way that he's writing it and the in the story arc is stretching out yeah and I feel like this could be the you know subconsciously why people say oh this is the slog this is where the books slow down they do slow down but there are still a lot of really cool events and climaxes that happen yeah but i almost wonder if like people can't put their finger on why it feels slow but it might be the fact that you know this isn't a self-contained story arc from page one of path of daggers to page whatever the last page is and because every time you finish the book you feel some sort some sense of closure and the slog comes from the people that were reading this book get to as the it end was of it published. as it was published and then have to wait two or three years for the next one to come out right and that can be very dissatisfying because there wasn't really i mean there's a lot of stuff that went down but you need the next one to make it really pay off right and you're not going to get that for two or three more yeah, years yeah i i get that i i think i can agree with that up to a certain point but 
there is something to be said for the fact that while number eight was it seven or eight that's like the shortest book in the series it's eight well sure i mean fine it's the shortest book in the series that's not saying much these are <laughs> long ass books you know yeah. and um and so what, what what's my point oh yeah i guess my point is just so it, i can mm-hmm. totally buy into what you're saying and yet mm-hmm. it still can be a bit sluggish sure no I, so, yeah i'm not saying that it's not i'm saying and and then the other thing is you've read it before and so mm-hmm. you know what the payoff is oh, yeah. and so that feels a little more exciting to you mm-hmm. whereas for me i'm like oh dude something's got to happen give me something yeah, yeah. you know no, I, I i need something here and he's not giving me anything yet mm-hmm. and so if i were not reading this for the podcast in fact uh, i did get up through uh, the middle of book 10 years ago before i gave gave up essentially and and the reason was there was no end in sight mm-hmm. i couldn't you know i, I couldn't stay invested Mm -hmm. and so anyway so i guess all i'm saying is that i can sympathize very easily with somebody who says uh nope i'm i'm good i don't need to finish it because he took too long to pay it off i get it sure yeah no i think that's i'm gonna finish it that's totally fair and i think i think that's well it's obviously the number one complaint that right fantasy readers have and it's very widely known that that this is the big issue with Wheel of Time. Now, if you're a diehard fan or you've read all the way to the end, it doesn't become as much of an issue because you know the payoff. But like you said, it, not knowing, it's it's a very steep mountain to climb. Yep. Um, now, all this being said, because that was like seven or eight minutes of, uh, <laughs> of kind of going after Jordan for his pacing at this point in the series. But all that being said... Man, I had some fun with this book. Yeah. There were yeah. some excellent moments, mm-hmm. uh, some some great character bits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there was just enough, but not too much Perrin. Um, <laughs> I I liked the Egwene storyline quite a lot. Uh, I did not like those first four or five chapters with the Windfinders and the Kin and the Bowl no. of the Winds. Although when they actually did finally whip out the Bowl of the Winds uh, and use that. I that was a cool was chapter, mm-hmm. and then running away from the Shan Chan and undoing the weaves and all, you know, like yeah. that was really cool stuff. Yeah. So, um, so there were awesome moments, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of fun, and and I'm excited to read book nine. The, um, yeah. I just wanted to you know yeah. to air my oh, concerns. I'm, I'm with you. He gave me just enough, just enough to break up the monotony of of the churning, you know, and mm-hmm. getting there and getting I, there was enough action, and enough spots to basically like you're on a interstate drive and you need to hit that rest stop. We had just enough action rest stops along the way to keep me going. This is uh, I think this is actually a really good book if we cause, cause eventually, especially in books 12, 13 and 14, we're going to start having the conversation, the difference between Jordan and Sanderson as writers and right. what they focus on and things like this. Um, with the very little of Sanderson that I've read, I've, I've obviously read the last, several books of Wheel of Time that he finished and I've read the first Mistborn and I'm halfway through the second Mistborn. Oh, man. Um, oh, man. So I haven't read I haven't read a ton, but from for my brief uh my brief readings of Sanderson, he's very plot driven. He is very very really, really good at building up 
ramping up the the tension and then just basically pushing that boulder over the edge and letting it go. And but there's there's very specific plot points and he's very good and he's a he's a plot storyteller for sure. Mm-hmm. Not to say that he's not good with characters or anything like that cuz just saying that overall from my your my, your impression my is. impression is he's a he's a plot driven writer. Um and I think Jordan's a little bit of the opposite. I think that he obviously has a plot. I mean every story has a plot. But he's much more character driven um, from what I've seen. And this book very much focuses more. And you could say that for the last book as well um, or any of these books. But they don't have as much straightforward plot or the plot is inching towards the end. Mm -hmm. But he spends a lot of time with his characters. And some of that is where those fun moments happen. and, And you see things like, you know, Egwene's story arc that's happening right now. There's a lot of character development that's happening with Egwene's story arc. And, and the people around her. And the people well. around her. And so that is, I think this, that's something to point out, especially in these later books, is pay attention to the character development and think of it more of a, as a character story rather than a plot story. That's yeah. not to say that the plot's not going to move along, but for the next couple books, it's it going, but really it is it's about, going to creep along. Yeah, yeah. It's really about who's doing what. And there are still far too many people for me to keep up on. Mm-hmm. Oh, I stopped trying. Oh my gosh. When, <laughs> when, they, <laughs> when they start listing off all the different Aes Sedai, I'm like, I don't know who there's you a, are. Yeah. There's a I, chapter I toward the end of the book when uh, Elida is talking with yes. several of the sitters and he's, he names the, like, at, at, there are like six sitters with Name, names all the sitters from and the he different gets to houses the, and stuff. He gets and... to the fourth one and says, "Well, she wasn't as pretty as this other one, but she came from this land and had this sort of upbringing, and she keeps a pet snake in the third drawer down in her dresser." And, and you know, yeah. And it's like I don't do not care, care. do not care. <laughs> <And> <laughs> For sure. So well, there, there are hell, little you gotta, you there are keep, little moments. You got to keep two, you know, hall. Aes Sedai. So there's two different halls of the tower. Exactly. Yeah. Salidar and the White Tower. And so you've got sitters, but you can't remember is it these sitters or those sitters? Yeah. And now and now you've so, got all those Ashaman too, and that he started naming. And I'm like, I, yeah, I don't I'm know out. who all of you are. <laughs> I really, just just call him call him the sitter for the purple Aja and, and move on. I don't care. The only the only Ashaman that I could really remember was. Deshiva, mm-hmm. yeah, because he kept because he kept because he kept being focusing persistent. on yeah. Deshiva and saying Deshiva was scowling. Deshiva was a dick. Deshiva was a you know yeah. was a weirdo. Deshiva mm-hmm. was this and that. Which he keeps he kept shining the light on. You keep thinking that that name might be important. Yeah, so later yeah, in this book, like, what that damn's got to burst. Um, I don't want to talk about that yet. Okay, because that's like the end of the book. Yeah. But uh, but what else do we want to talk about? Um, you mentioned the Egwene storyline, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to bring up with that? Yeah, I actually really like this storyline in this book. Um, Even though you hate Egwene, yeah, I hate Egwene. I mean, screw her. Oh, come on, she's growing but, on you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I really like what's going on um, in Salidar. Well, I guess they're out of Salidar now. But what's going on with the Rebel Aes Sedai. Now she's still and, like eighteen, right? Yeah, kid president. Right. Yeah. Um, are they? Are they still like I? I yeah, feel like, like they're a like year, in the year early and a half twenties or something. Yeah, or something, something like that. Like it's that. it's it's weird. He he doesn't do a good job. It's, sorry, this is a tangent, but he doesn't do a great job of of describing that they are still really young. I mean, Rand mm-hmm. feels like he's thirty five or so. He feels like he's mm-hmm. aged a ton in this. Well, book, I mean, in it's, this it's such a long series, and there's so much that happens. That, even reading it, we've been we've spent the better part of a year reading it. So, right. 
Um, it feels like a, a lot more has, I mean, a lot more time has passed right. within the story when in reality it's not that much. It's like when Ryan yeah. brought it up, I think for a crown of swords where it's like all days. of this happened in 11 days. Yeah. And it's like, what? No, I don't this know how felt long, like it was like six months. I don't know how long this is, is taking, but and, and he does, he does try to bring it back to reminding the reader that, Oh yeah, they're not very old because you know, men and, and Cad Swain and a lot of ancillary characters say, Oh, he's seen far too much in his mm-hmm. short years well, and com- stuff like that. It comes up with Nynaeve and Elaine a lot where yeah. they don't take them seriously as Aes Sedai. And so that's kind of how he brings age back into it. But anyway, so I apologize it, for getting, no, it's okay. Getting on so yeah, there. Egwene stuff. So with Egwene, um, basically, like you said in your intro, she's kind of maneuvered herself. Well, not she hasn't maneuvered herself. Swan has done all of the maneuvering and planning with her, and uh, Egwene has executed it really well. But Swan is the one in the background helping her formulate all of this. Um, and basically, she's gotten to the point where um, the Hall of the Tower is not taking her seriously. They're trying to put her up as a puppet. That's what happened when they put her in the Amarlin seat. They wanted somebody that would basically just be like a mascot for the Rebel Aes Sedai, a figurehead that they could throw under the bus if everything just fell apart. And you've got Romanda and you've got Lelaine for the different for the different sitters that are they have like half of the hall. Each of them have their like factions or whatever, and they have their own agendas and each of them is trying to steer Egwene to do what she wants them to do. And, you know, behind the scenes, Swan and Egwene and uh Leandrin. Leon Liana. Liana. Yeah, Leandrin. Not Leandrin. There are so many uh, Swan and Egwene and Liana <laughs> see have what kind I, of come too up many with names. their own their own plots and schemes. And basically what has ended up happening is uh Gareth Bryn has sworn fealty to the Amerlin seat. The hall thinks that he's gonna follow them and do what he says, but he's loyal to Egwene. Well, he's loyal to Swan. Swan. Well, he's loyal to Egwene. He's in love with Swan. Well, that's but, he's, but that's why he's loyal to yeah, Egwene. But right? he swears. Well, I don't know if he actually swears. 15. I don't think no, he does. He, but he I, basically says, yeah, "I guess not." You know. But he does say, "I follow yeah. the Amarlin." Yeah. Yeah. So he's loyal to Egwene and Swan, and uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, dynamic because the Hall thinks that they control him, but what Swan and Egwene have cooked up is basically a way to maneuver themselves into declaring war on Elida because there's this like tiny written rule somewhere, the law of war um, within the laws of the tower that says, if you declare war, then it basically gives absolute power to the the Amarlin seat. Allows the Amarlin to declare martial law. Yeah, basically. And uh, what's happened is Romanda and Lelaine have gotten so caught up in their politicking <laughs> and uh, back and forth on what they think is important that they get so caught up in that that they're kind of brushing off anything that Egwene does. And Egwene brings it to the Hall of the Tower after meeting with a bunch of nobles from Andor and uh, basically says, we need to declare war on Elida. And they're like, whatever, that's dumb. Let's go do this other thing. And she says, no, you can't. Um, you you have to address this have before address you can address it. anything yeah, else. Yeah, because it's yeah. the law, and if there's war, if there's declaration of war, it has to be addressed. And so them in their, you know, I guess in the hurry to try to get to their own political agendas, say... Like, oh, fine. Okay, okay fine, whatever. Let's we'll, do this, you yeah. know, we'll, we'll declare we'll, war on Elida. We declare war on, on Elida, and they try to get the majority consensus, and they don't get it. But they got enough 
to make it happen. So they declare war on Elida, and then they try to brush off Egwene again and go on to the next thing. And Egwene says, uh-uh, I don't think so, because once you've declared war, that means Armorlin is, you know... In charge. In charge. You allowed me to organize the first galactic the empire. Now. And it was a really cool um, political, like... I don't know. That was when, and, and then and, Jar Jar Binks play. was like, I move that we vote. This is how hey. democracy dies. <laughs> yep. Thunderous applause. Oh, man. <laughs> so okay. Bad. So, so bad. Anyways, enough of that. So it was a great, it was a great political scheme by Swan and, and Egwene pulled it off. She had to execute it very well. And she, you know, to her credit, she had to basically bite her tongue for months and let the hall think that she's think a that puppet, she's a puppet. Yeah, sure. and so she played it off really well and now they are in the driver's seat so here's a question for you uh, about Egwene now that she's in the driver's seat Egwene is as we have mentioned before becoming very thoroughly eyes to die uh, and we'll have a debate about what that means in the future but I want to talk about secrets because Egwene is no stranger to keeping secrets. She has bought into this Aes Sedai idea that some secrets simply need to be kept and they don't deserve, or, you know, people don't deserve to hear them or they don't need to hear them or it's better for the world if this doesn't come out or whatever. So she buys into that idea. So does Elida, the rival Omerlin seat. But... Elida's secrets have potentially disastrous consequences, and I haven't seen Elaine run into any, or not Elaine, Egwene run into any problems yet. So there's that that scene I mentioned when Elida is sitting with the six other the sitters from the hall, and she is thinking to herself about the fact that some of the Ashaman have rediscovered the ancient art of traveling. And yeah. she says, oh, I'm I'm glad that I've kept that to just a handful of people because, oh, it would be chaos if everybody knew that traveling had been rediscovered. Mm-hmm. Boy, she has no idea. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, the fact that she's keeping this secret means that she is putting the entire White Tower in peril because everybody knows, everybody knows it except the White Tower. <laughs> everybody. Yeah. And so... Yeah. You know, she, by keeping this secret, she is putting the White Tower at danger. Mm-hmm. Anyway, has there been anything like that with Egwene? Uh, I I, ha- I can't remember well, anything. I mean, she didn't and have I, I Gideon hope... on a leash for a while. Right, but nothing and bad happened loose. to her. Yeah, but now she got away. Well, sure. And so it's yeah, like... Yeah, she got away, and then Mogideon just got screwed over anyway. Well, yeah, but Egwene doesn't know that Mogideon got screwed over. Well, sure. But I, I'm, I guess I'm just saying, like, plot-wise, hey, karma... For Egwene, karma is not a, uh, well. <laughs> and I said I. <laughs> um, so anyway, I guess I am I am hoping that maybe in future um, books, Mogideon will come back to bite her in, in the rear yeah. end. Oh, so you're wanting something Comes that's back like really. I, yeah, I just want. Careless for Egwene. Yeah, you know, I was, she has several secrets. I mean, yeah, she but keeps there secrets are from no... the hall and she keeps secrets from individuals um, i guess i'm just looking at some of the similarities between the way the good guys act and the way mm-hmm. the bad guys act and robert jordan seems to be very free with having bad consequences for the bad guys mm-hmm. uh, they see a lot of terrible consequences for their, their for their terrible actions but when mm-hmm. the good guys do the same thing eh, 
nothing yeah. happens. Yeah. And, and you know, you yeah. think of like Savannah as well. Like Savannah mm-hmm. does all these horrible things and she makes terrible decisions, mm-hmm. and nothing ever happens to her. But then when well, uh, I mean, in this book, um, you know, Rand unleashes Kalandor and then basically destroys his own army. Uh, that's yeah. true. You know, that's that's pretty Ooh, bad. I have some things to say about that too. Yeah, we and we can bring that up, bring that yeah. up in a little bit. But that's something very glaring. Um, you know, Nynaeve has had some really humbling experiences where she's had some really bad things happen to her as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, I get what you're, I get your point. The nature of it is that like, even if it's a learning, I don't know, a learning process for the good guys, nothing really earth shattering or fatal has happened to any of our good guys just yet. Right. Yeah. So I get, yeah, I think that's fair. Um, anyway, it's it, right. it, I'll be watching. That's yeah. all. It'll be it'll be interesting because, you know, to your point, Elida made the decision to put Rand in a box, and now What's in the box? and now <laughs> that's working out really poorly for everybody involved. Right. Not just Elida and her agenda, but everybody. There is not a single Aes Sedai that Rand is going to trust now. Right, and yeah. uh, he gets just more and more paranoid and crazy as we go, and so yeah. So, uh, can I switch gears a little bit? Ken, I want to ask you a question. All right. What does it mean to be Aes Sedai? Are you talking about uh, Egwene and Swan's uh-huh. long discussion? I'm glad yeah. you brought that up because I thought that was, I thought that was a fantastic. And is this level three stuff? Uh, the discussion be. between that what? depends on you. I'm asking you the question. You get to decide where we go with this for the next 30 seconds before I tell you to shut up and take the <laughs> reins back. I, I I loved I loved their discussion about the three oaths. I mean, Egwene says, "Hey, I want to discover a way," or I have. Does she say I have discovered, or I want to discover a way to basically break the Aes Sedai of their three oaths that that in her mind cripples them from being able to spin webs of deceit and lies and everything, which clearly we know they can spin deceits even among the three oaths. Or, or effectively defend themselves. Yeah, or, yeah. But Sawan says those three oaths are what make the Aes Sedai trustworthy. They're what makes us, what give us honor and what give us uh, credibility, basically. And I... Yeah. Honestly, I I, I Do, tend so to agree with her. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're I, on Swan's side. I, on I think, by and large, I'm on Swan's side. I mean, obviously, the, the Aes Sedai, I just I can't stand anyone. Yeah, of I know, them, but, I know. But but there's a lot of credibility to what uh, to what Swan says. I mean, I Il, Egwene, excuse me, says basically these rules have crippled us. They've limited our freedom. They've uh, they hold us back, and Sawan says these are what make us. These are what give us structure, what give us order, what make us. I said, I, we, I mean, we hear arguments like that. I, I've heard arguments like that uh, because of, of certain beliefs that I believe. You yeah, know, it's and, a it's a very common religious debate that goes yeah. on, right? And, and people say, oh, you all those rules, you got all those commandments, you got all those, uh, they hold you back, you can't have any fun. It's like, no, these these give my life structure. They give me guidance. They, they're they very actually freeing because I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm not confused. I'm not clouded. And I, this is kind of the same argument that Sawan was making, I think. And I think it was a very great argument. All right. Kyle, ready, set, go. Um, I don't love them. I The I, three O's, yeah. you mean? I don't love the three oaths. I would probably be on Egwene's side in this in this instance to get rid of them. Um, For a guy who hates Egwene so much, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> again, I hate her as a person. She does some pretty good stuff, but um, my thought is, 
you know, Suan's argument is if you, if a sister says a thing, it is taken as truth because of the three oaths that they cannot, one of them is that they cannot lie. But that has been so twisted and changed throughout the years that pretty much everybody on the planet knows that, you know, what's the saying? An eye said eyes truth isn't always what you think it is. Right. Or always what, you know. The truth you hear isn't, isn't always the truth that, exactly. or whatever. So, like, they're, it's basically worthless anyways um, because they're so good at manipulating the truth into what they want it to be. And my thought is, in order to be trustworthy, you shouldn't be forced to be trustworthy. Like you should earn that as as a as a right or whatever. And if you were actually being the organization that you're supposed to be, being Aes Sedai, then you could earn that trust by doing the things like I don't know if you know protecting the people or advancing knowledge or whatever it is that I said I are actually supposed to do in the world <laughs> right by doing those things and not locking yourself away in a tower and basically you know puffing yourself up and saying this is what we are when you're not just be those things and you don't need the oaths you know it's, it, uh, I, that's interesting you, you bring up something that I have not considered until this moment and that's that, yeah, they have oaths, but uh, the Aes Sedai as an organization has no goal. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. Their goal is to exist. And they, yeah, they've basically just made themselves into like this, I guess, overarching world, like police force or not even police force, but like. They tell the kings world babysitters. And, yeah, the world, the, the, the world watchers. Because uh, originally, the the Amarlin who will see, watch the watchmen? Yeah, what they're That's supposed to be doing, what they're supposed to do, is like guard against the dark one being released because mm-hmm. and like prepare the world for the dragon reborn to come and fight Tarmangadan because the Amarlin seat title is Watcher of the Seals. And those seals oh, okay. are the seals to the Dark One's prison. They're actually supposed to hold those seals within the White Tower and protect them and watch over them and guard them. The ones so, that they had none of. Yeah. Yeah. The ones that they have none of. And so they aren't doing anything, especially what they're supposed to be yeah. doing. If I if I may counter argue though, I I agree uh-huh. principally with your with your complaint, but it seems like the complaint is about the people rather than the concept of, you know, having the three oaths, which kind of lend credibility to the organization. The problem is with the people that are running the organization. I mean, aside from mm-hmm. Sawan and well, Egwene and a couple of others, I mean, the people are all puffed no, up. Because I, th- cause I think know, we're actually yeah. probably on the same page that, like, this is what the I said I should do. And so, you know, you're saying yeah. take the three oaths and that proves that they do it. And I'm just saying, well, just do it. And then you <laughs> right. don't need to have the three oaths, you know, because that's, you know, if you were honest and you were going to protect the world from dark friends or whatever the other oaths are, just do it. And sure. then you don't, you know, the oath, like you said, the oaths are supposed to lend credibility to the Aes Sedai. Well, just be credible. Right. And then you don't have to have oaths. Well, and just do what you say. And there, well, there I think, is another argument. Yeah, you're against, putting a lot of faith in human beings. I, I think it's another argument against the Aes Sedai as an organization, though. It's it's not the oath that should lend credibility to the 
or, or it's not the oaths that should make the Aes Sedai be honorable. It's they should be picking honorable people to take the oaths. The oaths should represent that these people are honorable, and it's not. It all of the Aes Sedai are manipulative and, and well, and they've been trained string from novices all the way up that you're going to take the three oaths, and so you know these are the these are the things that you're going to be magically obligated to do. You right. know, and we see later in the chapter, later in the book, when there's a, I can't remember their names because there's a thousand different named Aes Sedai, <laughs> but there's two sitters in the White Tower all the way down in the basements with the oath rod. Oh, right. And right. they're making people take more oaths on the oath rod, or they're making them get rid of their oaths, retake the oaths, and then take another oath so that they can say that basically, I'm not a dark friend. Are you now, yeah. or have you ever been? And we see with the one, uh, with <laughs> no. the first. Aes Sedai that takes that oath that when she has conflicting oaths on the oath rod it almost kills her. It almost kills her. She basically strangles herself because she's been told that she cannot lie but then the other Aes Sedai is telling her to tell something that she believes is a lie. So, you know, she's basically going to kill herself doing this. Yeah. And uh, by obligating these novices or by knowing that those oaths are there, they basically don't have to when they're teaching young Aes Sedai to become Aes Sedai, they don't have to teach them to be honest or like give them any real value because they're just not going to be able to tell a lie. You right. know what I mean? And so like you're basically shackling these people and you're not allowing them to actually be human beings that you can have faith in. Right. All well, right. All not, right. All right. All right. They're so, not teaching in the principles that, that make the yeah. oaths worth having. That was a lot of discussion on this point. That was a lot of level three. Todd would be proud of us. That wasn't level three. That was pretty level three. But it it was getting there. Uh, I guess I'll just say, as I was reading it, I do side with Egwene. But uh, but then when Swan had her say, I respect that point of view a lot. I think there's logic behind it. I think it's just a a matter of like how you believe. I think it's the, this is the last word I'll have on it. Swan believes in the principle and Egwene believes in the practical and they're not necessarily divergent. No, in their because beliefs. I hate Egwene, even though I agree with her, <laughs> she doesn't want to have to tell the truth because she's a terrible person there and she go. wants to lie to people. So <laughs> that's what well, it is. Let's, I want to get on to the next point. I need a little break though. So I'm just going to, let's talk amongst oh, ourselves. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the first lessons they teach you in radio school is don't drink soda. Oh yeah, listen. Oh, you might not be able to hear that if you're just listening, but I'm very excited. All right, Ken. <laughs> What's your next point? What do you want to talk about? Um, gosh, there's some. I I don't know what I want to talk about now and what we should save for Ryan, but ah, I, screw him. Screw I uh, that guy. <laughs> screw that guy. I want to. I want to talk. We'll about, just make uh, next episode because Ryan's not here. Oh yeah, by the way, in case you didn't notice, <laughs> Ryan's not here. Um. The next episode will just be all right, Ryan. Go on with your points, and we'll <laughs> and we'll respond. And we'll sit back and go, yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> okay, uh, sorry, go on. Um, I, I want to talk about how uh, the Sea Folk are monumentally annoying, and I think they're going to become <laughs> a really, really big problem because they seem to be. Uh, we uh, we uh, who was it? Who was it that came and talked to Rand about? The negotiations. Rand shows up, talks to the yeah. Sea Folk, pulls some Taviran strings, and says, "You will now follow me." And they say, "Oh yes, we will all follow you." And then he walks away, leaving the Aes Sedai to his his subservient Aes Sedai to Marana. 
I think that's who it was. Sure, why not? To (laughs) to hammer out the details of this new treaty that they're following the the Colaver? What no Coravor. Coravor, thank you. Too many. Colaver Saigon killed herself. Yeah. That's right. Um, so anyway, and then she comes back and says, these are the terms that we ironed out. He's like, yeah, fine, fine, fine. Until she gets to the one about, I don't remember what the last term was, but it sets him. Oh, they they want to have an ambassador there that doesn't answer to Rand and isn't subservient to him at all. And you have to come running whenever we say, and he loses yeah. his. Well, they want, they want one shended. to, yeah, they want a, a wind finder or a sea folk representative to be with Rand at all times. At all times. Basically like an advisor. Yeah, and you got to come running when we say, mm-hmm. you know, when we summon you, and he loses his stack, and, and with good reason. And I thought, these Aes Sedai really suck at negotiations. And then I thought, is it that, or are the sea folk just really that good well, at Well, I mean, that's kind of their trademark Yeah, is negotiating. Yeah, so and they, it, I mean, it they also like took Elaine and Nynaeve They took to Elaine and over the Nynaeve. Bowl, the bowl of the wind, yeah, they so. totally, totally fleeced them. Now they fleece this other Aes Sedai. And I think, seriously, in the next 20 or 25 books, I don't remember how many we have left, but <laughs> they're going to become a problem, I think. I I think their, their fealty to Rand really? is um, of convenience at best, and they're not going to look for a second chance. I just to don't think we know enough about them to say that for sure. Because I don't, also I don't either, but that's just that, what I get the feeling. In of. that discussion, it's acknowledged that Rand is the Coromor. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean the same thing as Rand is the Dragon Reborn or, or the Karakarn. Or the Karakarn but it obviously means something to them. Right. And so I just don't think we know enough about the Sea Folk yet to say that uh, uh, that this is trouble for sure, but it sure is annoying. And they are annoying. Yeah, they are annoying. And if, if it's not trouble, it sure doesn't feel helpful. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're not it's, only it's annoying to another, Rand, though. It's a wrench in, the, in his whole grand scheme of yeah. things because... It's just like, I mean, he's got so many cultures and nations and all this. I mean, and that's what happens when you're a world conqueror. Right. But he's got so many things to, and so many peoples to try to keep happy that he can't even do his damn job because he's so worried about <laughs> keeping the sea folk happy with with their thing and then keeping the Aiel happy over here, which they are not happy because the maidens beat the crap out of him. Oh, that was awesome, um, by the way. <laughs> and then keeping, you know, just keeping everybody's factions and nations right. and laws and whatever. And he's supposed to break that down a little bit, but he's also, if he doesn't try to keep some semblance of the laws and, and lands that he's, that he's taking over, then nobody's going to follow him. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's just, a, it's another wrench and they're particularly annoying. Yeah. So I, I concur. Well, not just to Rand, but to the Aes Sedai, they're annoying too. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning there when they are coming along with the, the kin and the Aes Sedai and they're just irritating yeah. all over. All right, Kyle, what do you want to talk about? Oh, I've got a couple of little rapid fire things that okay. aren't like big. I mean, because there's obviously some really big plot points that we haven't talked I about. Rapid fire but I got some rapid fire stuff. Um, mentioned it a little bit in the intro. Um, Perrin, Perrin is basically collecting queens. Um, because he's got Fael who's going to end up being the uh, heir to because Tenobia her cousin is the queen right and if she doesn't have any sort of children then it passes to Davram Bashir who is Fael's dad right so she's basically like in line to be queen of Saldea well and she's also despite what what Perrin says she will be the queen of Monethrin yeah right yeah pretty soon so like he's got his queen wife over there He's also, you know, he's got um, Barrelane. Oh, uh, what's her name? Morgays. 
Not well. He's got more gays. I was thinking the other queen that swore fealty to him. Oh, Alundrin. Yeah, that's her. Her. Aliandra. Aliandra. No, no. I don't know. Anyways, yeah, that one. I there's so many names and they all. I wanted to say Alana. It's not Alana. (laughs) But anyways, so she swears fealty to him, the queen of Gildon. Gildon, and then Morgays ends up being ladies maid to. Fael, so he's got three queens, and I then he's right. got Berylaine that's following him around, like uh, First like Ken was saying, like a cat in heat. And uh, so Perrin has got four queens, so he's got four of a kind, and you know, <laughs> it's there's interesting things going on over there with yeah. Perrin. My other rapid fire thing that's still with Perrin is Elias is back, and Elias is sweet. Elias yeah, is sweet. He I doesn't do much Elias. in this besides no. say besides tell Perrin, oh by the way, this is what your wife wants from you. Yeah. And he's like, screw you. I know my wife. And he's like, yeah, no, you don't. No, you don't. Yeah. And we find out that he, his Aes Sedai that he's bonded to is still around somewhere. Right. And, uh, I think that that's really, yet. yeah, I think that that's really interesting. So he's got to I would really love to see by. Elias like have to meet his Aes Sedai at some point. And so that'd be kind of cool. Okay. Um, yeah. Other little rapid fire things that Rand trusts, is it Flynn? Yeah. To go and grab Kalandor, which I think is a huge deal. Like, right. wait, hang on. Rand just like set all these booby traps so that nobody can touch it. And for Rand to trust anybody, especially with Kalandor, is a big deal. And so I thought that was interesting, just kind of throw out there. Especially because uh, he's, he's been writing to men saying, trust no one, trust no one, yeah, trust no exactly. one. He's got his couple little uh, Ashaman that he, he trusts. Uh, do, you, do you suppose that was... Um... <sighs> Was that just a little shortcut for Robert Jordan? I mean, he could have just had Rand uh, cut a hole in the air and go get it, uh, I guess. But I I, I guess the other thing I was thinking of was, I guess he maybe didn't want to take Rand away from the action. And so he just kind of wrote in a little bit of unearned trust. It didn't. It could have happened off screen. I mean, all of a sudden he shows up with Kalendor. It's like, oh, he went and got Kalendor during some of the parent chapters, you know? Well, yeah. So I wonder why, I guess I'm just saying, I wonder why he wrote it that way. There's some interesting things. And I think this is a pretty good segue to start talking about some Ashaman stuff. But there's some interesting things going on with the Ashaman. Because originally, Tame or Tame wanted to send Rand all raised Ashaman, and that was it. He wanted to send him his guys, basically. Right. The guys that Tame has raised to the Ashaman level within the Black Tower. And Rand said, no, I want to take all of these soldiers or dedicated, and I'm taking these guys. Right. And uh, only a couple of Tame's guys that were act- had actually earned the pin so far were hanging around Rand. And were because, were all those guys the attackers at the end? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get there. Yeah. So, we'll, yeah. so there's an interesting thing because Rand does not trust Taim at all, I and mean, he shouldn't. And neither, you know, Luce Theron goes ballistic every time he sees him. Anyways, well, even the moment he, should, he yeah, show, the no. moment he shows back up in book six, yeah. You know, I mean, every time, comes, every time yeah, we see like, all the Ashaman, but especially Taim, Luce Theron saying, "Kill him! Kill him! Kill him! Kill him!" Whatever. But Rand has, there's, there's almost like two factions of Ashaman. There's the ones that yeah. are with Rand that Rand has raised, you know, and has trained and has had them around. And uh, there's a there's a little throwaway comment. I can't remember if it was in Crown of Swords or if it's the first of this book where Rand starts giving out Ashaman pins to the guys that have been around him, the sh- soldiers and the dedicated. And Tame doesn't like that those yeah. guys were raised to Ashaman outside of the Black Tower, that Taim couldn't raise them himself. And there's obviously this, like, struggle between Rand and Taim going on. 
Um, but it's really interesting because Rand is not going to trust pretty much any Ashaman, but especially any Ashaman that Taim sends to him. Right. And I think it's interesting to see him trust one of his own guys, especially I- with Calandor. Right. And so I, I think that it's not just a let's save this from a plot standpoint or from like a it's a convenient let's keep Rand in the action and send some guy to get this. I think it's a very subtle character development from Rand. I agree. That he starts to realize he has to trust people, but he can't trust people. And this is an interesting, interesting way to do it because you send a man who can channel who's destined to go mad to go get the second or third most powerful Sangreal ever created. And you're basically just trusting that he's not going to come back and try to kill you with it or even just take it and do his own, like go rogue. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I, I, I don't think it's as much of a convenience thing as much as it is a very subtle Rand character development, whether it's for better or for worse, because who knows, you know, obviously the Ashaman at the end betray him. Um, we don't know every thought that every Ashaman has, but if Rand is starting to trust people here and there, that either means it's a good thing and he's starting to trust, or maybe he trusts the wrong person and it ends up being a bad thing. Well, he, so, I mean, the guy's character development. That's what I'm putting. Are we, are we talking about the end now? I mean, sure. Go ahead. Well, I mean, clearly, I mean, he doesn't trust the Shiva throughout the book and it's, it's kind of paid off at the end there where it turns out, oh, wait, look at that worst kept secret, you know, mm-hmm. of ever I mean, that Deshiva was was going to betray him. But it shows that he, he does have his his two or three that he can trust. I mean, he's got Flynn. He's got uh, the guy that Hop, actually went crazy. Mad Hop or Hop Step or whatever his name is. Like, Hopwell. Hop. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Come on, one man. Other, Hopwell and one other that who was the old Ashaman from the last book that he trusts. Oh, also, I don't remember his name, but he's, he's got a couple that he trusts and uh, they show up at the end after after uh, Deshiva and his guys have started blowing things up. Uh, so it's clearly that those guys are Team Rand in the in the Ashaman and, and then uh, Masram Taim shows up and says, oh, they weren't supposed to do this. I did blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. You were behind it the whole time and we all know it. And it's, you know, we're just waiting for the big... Yeah, I couldn't Rand quite Tain figure throwdown. out why he even showed up at the end. Um, yeah, I'm very excited for the Taim showdown, uh, I and I think it's got a. Uh, he's 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 a wank. He's greasy, manipulative, um, and and just waiting for his I, moment I, to usurp the. What I cannot figure out is why Rand leaves him in power. Mm-hmm. Can't you find somebody else to? do this i mean i guess it's not like there are a ton of experienced men who can mm-hmm. channel out there i get that but at the same time like this guy is obviously untrustworthy yeah and yet rand is effective well and yet rand doesn't even visit the farm anymore yeah he has yeah. visited the farm like two or three times that mm-hmm. we've seen you know uh, and at this point he has stopped visiting it and he just assumes that things are going fine even though he knows that time is usurping power he's and he's working naming himself him. a leader yeah he's working against rand in subtle what, ways is there is there you know something to the uh the devil you know versus the devil you don't know i think thing? that's i think that's largely what it is i think it's taim is the second most powerful male channeler in the world so i want him here basically outside of the forsaken yeah out, well yeah outside of the forsaken which are kind of a unique thing and 
and so he he says he wants him close basically it's mm-hmm. like all the men have to be you know mm-hmm. but still he can he could do away with with Taim and go get Logan well Logan does Log- show up yeah well, he doesn't know Rand doesn't know there. yeah you got to remember that we have a different view than Rand right. Rand Rand doesn't know that Logan's even out there last thing last time Rand heard of Logan he was in a box on his way to see Queen Morgay's in That's the true. Eye of the World and also. Even if he did know Loghain was out there, I wouldn't want that guy in charge either because, quite frankly, Loghain gets pretty rapey in this book. He's, <laughs> he, he kisses that Aes Sedai. Well, not just that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that. But, like, we've talked about how when Alana bonded Rand against his will, right. that was equivalent mm-hmm. to rape. And I, I don't know if that's what he does, if it's a bonding thing mm-hmm. or if he just uses some kind of compulsion. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, yeah, he does do something to Tovain, mm-hmm. compulsion or bonding or whatever, mm-hmm. so that she becomes... So you're saying Logan's not necessarily a step up from Taim? Not no. necessarily. Not from what we've seen mm-hmm. so far. He had some he had some redeeming moments when he was with uh, Suwan and Liana. Yeah. Um, is some somewhat redeeming yeah, moments. Yeah, I mean, he, he saved but he a was, couple things. Yeah. he was definitely out of power at that point. Mm-hmm. We didn't see him when he had power. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing him with power for just a brief moment. And the one thing he does when he has power is a pretty rapey thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and he, you know, and he's, and he's now part of the Black Tower, which they're all underneath Taim. Right. Um, you know, and he, he makes kind of a passing mention of like, yeah, if, if Taim knew what I was doing, or like Taim would probably prefer me dead anyways, basically right. is what he's saying. But like, even still, he's part of an organization led by Taim. So yeah. any sort of structure or whatever, he's going to fall in that category as well. Um, kind of going back to Taim, though, like I said, how do we feel about him? Because we had a pretty big discussion about him after Lord of Chaos, I believe it was, with some theories and things like that. I just want to know, two books after that, how you guys are feeling about Taim and what's really going on with Taim. It's pretty much all just reinforced what I thought back when he showed up on the farm, is that he, this guy is not to be trusted, and he's going to try to steal your your uh, position the moment he gets a chance. And he's, for two books now, been building up to mm-hmm. three books now, been building that infrastructure to basically usurp Rand and become the actual Dragon Reborn, he thinks, but I mean... Okay. Rant Sorry, what was your question? What what, what do we, we think, think about his him? plan is? Yeah, well, what's what do you think's going on for real with him? Like, because in I mean, in our Lord I'm, of Chaos book yeah, discussion, I, you guys were saying he's definitely Demondred in disguise. Do I, we still feel that way? I don't know about Demondred, but I still think that there uh, there is a strong case to be made at this point for him being a Forsaken in disguise. Okay. Yeah, big time. Okay. I I think he's just a guy with ambition. Okay. And a little, and well, not just a little, with a good chunk of crazy. Okay. Including the voice in so, his head, whoever that but is. But that brings me to my point. Well, one of, one of my points, I guess, is uh, Rand's going crazy. I mean, he's full-blown crazy. But Taim seems to have held off that, you know, madness for quite some time now. He's been channeling a lot longer than Rand has been. Or, uh, from what we see. Or he has simply embraced it. Yeah. If if now we do have that uh, example, what, what's a guy's name? Door or score or poor or whatever at the end of the book. More. Who more? There I you know. go. Sure. Uh, I was close. I knew it started with an S though. Uh, he does go crazy 
and that manifests itself as him reverting to a very childlike state mm-hmm. uh, a very unstable state and mm-hmm. so Rand kills him now we have that example but we were theorizing earlier that uh, that it could be the voices in these guys heads that are driving them crazy and we see that going on with Rand and yeah. he doesn't know which one he is Fed sometimes Fed one more. Yeah. There you go. Uh, anyway, so I, I wonder if Taim has essentially allied himself with whatever voice is in his head and that kind of coming to terms with it has it not not stopped the process mm-hmm. but significantly slowed the process because we've seen a couple I- of times where Rand and uh, Luz Theron will kind of um, work together a little mm-hmm. bit or at least talk together civilly. Mm-hmm. And so I could see a situation where Taim has simply come to terms. Embraced it. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, okay. uh, and and so that that could be, yeah, what's going on with him. Okay. So it's, it's almost, that. I don't want to say controllable, but somewhat controllable madness where it's like, right. yeah, we're just going to go with it. Kind of like, I mean, Padan Fane is crazy, straight up crazy, but he just does his thing. And, uh, he kind of just gives that gives that crazy a big old hug. Yeah, let's just go with it. So yeah, I mean, I could see that. I could see that happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, any other questions or brain busters? Uh, on I was going to say clearly. I mean, we see that a lot of the Ashaman are going crazy now. It's it's a thing. You know, throughout the book, you can see Ashaman talking to themselves and looking like they're having conversations with nothing, and you know, or or listening to to nothing at all, and you know, kind of like we we've seen Rand doing for eight books now, and. So that that's starting to roll. Well, I am very excited for the end of book nine because that's when the last thing that I remember has to happen. It's got to be in book nine because that's <laughs> the last one that I've read <laughs> before. And it hasn't happened yet. And it so. hasn't happened yet. So it's got to be at the end of this one. So I'm speaking excited. of all that, I, yeah, I won't spoil it though. Uh, okay. So we'd better wrap this one up. We do have another part two and we're going to make sure that we get, well, we're going to try really hard to get Ryan in for that one because I want to hear his, his thoughts on the book as well. And, uh, sorry, we couldn't get him in for that one. I I know it's better when there's four of us, but too bad. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. We will talk about the Sean Chen and Rand and all that. I've got so many little bullet points. Mm, I want to talk, I want to talk a lot or at least a little about the Golem Mm-hmm. And the foxhead medallion, and about Mordom, and the other foxhead medallion that shows up in this book. Okay, it's yeah. not a foxhead medallion, but it's got to, it's something mm. that's got to be made out of the same thing. Anyway, I want to talk about that. We've got a lot to go over, so hang in there for part two. Uh, I will also say I'm sorry that uh, I because the timing of this one wasn't quite as sure as previous ones. We didn't know beforehand what day and what time we were recording the way we usually do. So I didn't get anything up on Reddit asking for voicemails or other comments, but I will do that for part two. Uh, And I'll just go ahead and put the call out there now. If you would like to voicemail us with your questions, just go to our website, thelegendariumpodcast.com. And that little orange button at the bottom of the screen will allow you to send a voicemail. And so you can ask your questions. What did we think about this? Uh, Why do we hate this character so much? Uh, Learn how to read, you guys. Whatever you want to tell us, that's fine. Uh, Just send it via voicemail and we will respond to those on the air. Uh, I think that's about it. So 
See you guys at thelegendarium.reddit.com and support the show at patreon.com slash legendarium. And we will see you all in a week or two for part two. Bye, guys. Bye.